0: Welcome to the What's Next podcast with Tiffany Bova. Tiffany is a top-rated speaker, thought leader, and sales and marketing influencer known around the world as an industry visionary. Today, she's using her 20 years of sales experience to help companies focus on creating a high growth culture while adapting to the new realities of the market. She's always asking herself, what's next? Hi, this is Tiffany Bovo. Welcome to the What's Next podcast, where I have the pleasure of hosting today Martin Lindstrom. He's a branding expert and consultant, change agent, brand futurist, and best-selling author. He's carved out a niche as a global expert and pioneer in the fields of consumer psychology, brand marketing, and neuroscientific research. He's a New York Times and Wall Street Journal best-selling author of seven groundbreaking books on branding, including biology, brand sense, Brandwashed, and his latest book, Small Data, The Tiny Clues That Uncover Huge Trends. He's the anchor and producer of NBC's popular TV show, Main Street Makeover, on Today, a columnist for Fast Company and Time. He's also the recipient of Time Magazine's prestigious World's 100 Most Influential People. In 2015, Thinker 50 ranked Lindstrom number 18 amongst the world's most influential management thinkers. Well, Martin, thank you for joining me today on the What's Next podcast.
1: You are most welcome, Tiffany.
0: Well, listen, I like to start off this podcast doing something a little fun. It's called Bullish and Bearish. And it's a way for me to just kind of have a couple of quick questions and get your feeling on some things that are happening out there. Nothing too crazy, nothing political or social or religious, right? (laughs) We need to keep it sort of fun and and light, if you will. Uh, Absolutely. Bring it on. Bring it on, please. All right. All right. So so let me start uh, with this one. So, sleeping with your cell phone next to your bed, bullish or bearish? Bearish. And I know there's a story behind that.
1: Oh, absolutely there is. Do you know what? I'm trying to get rid of my phone altogether. I don't have a smartphone. I have an ordinary old-fashioned Nokia, which I bought on eBay because you can't buy those things anymore. And by the end of 2017, I'll get rid of my phone altogether. So, I won't even sleep with it. I won't have it in my life, Period.
0: Well, we're going to have to have you back on the podcast after that for like six months of detox and find out how that's going, right? Absolutely. All right. The next one is being able to manage and understand the long tail of data. Bullish
1: with a degree of uncertainty because it really depends on what space we're talking about. But definitely, yes, the long tail is fascinating.
0: All right, great. And then the third would be Bullish or bearish on the ability for people to create data with no bias?
1: Um, bearish.
0: Good, and 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 why do you think
1: that is? Well, because we as human beings are incredible. Uh, subjective and everything 85 percent of everything you and I do every day is taking place in our subconscious part of the brain and a lot of the stuff if not all of the stuff we do every day is deeply irrational I mean let me just ask you Tiffany uh, have you tried you sitting at home uh, you are swapping between the TV channels the uh, batteries on your remote control is flat and because of that you Press extra hard to squeeze the last drop of battery out of that remote control. Well, if you tried that, you know what I mean. It's deeply irrational. In fact, most of the stuff we do is every day. And because of that, there's no way we can be very rational around the data trials we're living behind us and who we are and why we're doing things.
0: Well, great. Well, that's a perfect segue into why I wanted to have you on this podcast today. I had the wonderful pleasure of reading your book, Small Data, The Tiny Clues That Uncover Huge Trends. And I know, you know, you are just one of the the leading thinkers around Uh, you know, how marketers and how brands can be better with their customer and consumers and anticipate what they may need. And I'd love for you to just kind of step us through what was the genesis of the book and and what you think most stood out to you after it published and, and you got some feedback.
1: Well, this really takes me back to 2003, where the Lego company was almost going through a bankruptcy. As crazy as it sounds today, the the company realized that the instant gratification generation had arrived. And and because of that, they simply do not have any time to, to play with Lego bricks. And So in a sense of panic, the company decided to change the size of the Lego brick from tiny bricks to huge building blocks, to reduce the building time from six or seven hours to half an hour an hour. And during December 2003, basically the entire company uh, realized they were on the wrong path. So this small outbreaker group decide, within Lego decided to move in with kids across Europe. And, and they move in with this 11-year-old boy in Germany. And as I are sitting on the floor interviewing this kid, um, one of the Lego guys is saying, hey, what are you most proud of? And the kid pauses for a second and he points at a a shelf on the wall and there's this old worn down pair of sneakers placed on the shelf. And he's saying that one. And of course, the Lego team is completely perplexed, expecting him to answer a Sony PlayStation or a Nintendo or something. But no, an old worn down pair of smelly sneakers, right? So he takes them down. And of course, the team is asking why. And the kid replies very thoughtfully, because this is evidence that I'm the best skater in town. You see, when I skate down, at the skate down or slide down the skateboard, it creates a certain mark on the side of the sole, and it has a very certain angle, and that angle is the evidence. And this was really striking for Lego. In fact, it was what later on led to the turnaround of of the company, because if a kid is able to spend hundreds, if not thousands, of hours of fine tuning the angle of a wear and tear on your sneaker. Why wouldn't the kids spend hundreds or thousands of hours of constructing a castle in Legos? So what Lego really realized here was that they were on the wrong path. They had to infuse storytelling back into the toy. They had to change the size of the bricks back to the small ones again. And all of that, as a consequence, they they teamed up with Harry Potter and Star Wars and and the likes. And they also developed the Lego movie around three years ago, which became, as you know, the second highest selling uh, movie uh, that year. And this is a story about how a piece of small data, seemingly insignificant observations made in our lives, how that in fact can turn around a destiny for a brand. And and yes, Lego is not only today the, the largest toy brand in the world, it's also the number one brand, according to a recent study just published four weeks ago in the world.
0: Yeah, and I think what you point out is, even though it's small data, it's, it's not even data that makes sense to have anything to do with each other, right? Absolutely. I mean, right. The shoes and skateboarding to somebody who is, you know, thinking about what they needed to do with Lego would not just naturally figure that out.
1: No, and that's the problem today because we're very linear in the way we're mining data. We 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 lo- we're constantly looking at correlations, um, but correlations are only telling you one side of the, of the picture. I mean, a good example will be will be Google and Google uh, some years ago back in 2012 uh, announced that they were able to predict a flu outbreak uh, five or six days before it would take place based on people's search algorithms. Um, And of course, everyone was thrilled about it, particularly my pharmaceutical community because it allowed them to ship all the products well in advance and prepare US for for a, a change. However, just recently, the Center for Disease Control announced that something was completely wrong with those numbers. You see, uh, what Google had done was to to focus on the correlation. But actually, what they should have looked at was the causation, the reason why, uh, the hypothesis creating the foundation for why Uh, this correlation was happening and they didn't and because of that the numbers were twice of what they should have been simply because people were typing in flu and then the neighbor would say hey you're typing in flu i better check it out as well so actually the term in his own right went viral and we've seen that quite often i mean another example would be in the banking industry where one of our clients, indeed, uh, went through a similar exercise. They, they realized they had a huge churn of customers, people leaving left, right and center and closing their accounts. And, and the bank was really uh, adamant about the reason why it was because they're unhappy. So they started to ship out all these letters, apologizing and, and trying to get people back. Yet there was a small group in the bank which said, Hi, why don't we look at the small data? So they started to talk with people. They went to their homes and realized a lot of these people undergo or went underwent a divorce. And because they went through that divorce, and uh, they would have to separate their accounts. And the separation meant that they had to close down both or one of the accounts. So the numbers again, the correlation was showing one thing, but the causation was completely different. And in our data obsessed world, we very, very quickly are jumping to conclusions. And believing this is the right answer, whereas quite often, because we are so irrational in in our behavior, there's always an underlying uh, dimension. I mean, that's the reason why uh, if we talk about love, uh, hopefully you haven't developed a spreadsheet, a Microsoft Excel spreadsheet explaining uh, the factors where you're in love with your partner. Uh, It just happens. And in many ways, data today is controlled by very rational behavior like doing that. However, it's just very, very difficult to articulate love through a spreadsheet.
0: Well Well, so, you know, one thing that gets a lot of press today is that data is the new oil, right? That yeah. that is sort of where people are going to double down. And of course, we've got no shortage of data. But I like to say underneath that, that I think the, well, I, I know analytics is the refinery for me on the data, <clears throat> but intelligence is the petrol. And so data for data's sake is interesting, right? Yeah. And if you have a good hypothesis going in, you're going to sort of have some good information out. But with the volume of it, there's no way to go through it without some kind of analytics. Yeah. And then there's no way that you can do something unless you're actually the mindset is willing to think differently about what the intelligence tells you to do, which might be counterintuitive to what you would have thought. Yeah. And and so you argue with the data, right? You try to make the data tell the story you want it to tell. Yeah. And, And so- when you think about these small pieces of data it's almost like the shoes or you've got you've got hundreds of stories in the book right with, that are just like that yeah um one i really liked uh, that stuck out to me and i read it a number of times and you actually used it a number of times was the the magnet of i think it was the um uh, eiffel tower on someone's uh, refrigerator in siberia yeah and and that making a full circle all the way back to a change. And so maybe use that example as well and talk through how if the data doesn't tell you what you want, (laughs) that you don't discount it, right? That you have to find a way to let your mindset shift at the same time
1: absolutely well it comes back to an overall philosophy i've sort of developed over the years that what we constantly are looking for when we do our search for small data is to look for out of balances and and we were we were asked for some some years ago not only to reinvent a, a whole new toy concept out of russia but later on many years later in fact we were asked to re invigorate a whole uh, supermarket chain in the United States. And even though those two projects have nothing to do in, in, in common, you could say that they actually were certainly interlinked. Uh, what, what we learned was uh, that working in Russia and Siberia Uh, that communities, in fact, were really intact. Uh, We learned that it probably was one of the few places in the world where community still is thriving or living. And we could see how it was killed slowly by technology and by other factors happening in our lives. Now, one of the factors we also learned from the inside was as we moved in with consumers across Siberia. And Tiffany, just to give you a sense of how big this whole country is, we literally were flying one and a half to two hours every day in a private jet for three 3 weeks and we ended up in uh, in a place which was half an hour flight from Tokyo still in Russia across six time zones so it's a huge country and a huge project for us now one of the things we did was to look at at people how people decorate their homes and and uh, people indeed were using fridge magnets as a decorating tool and we really didn't think about it at first but as we were sitting in these living rooms and looking at the fridges, I noticed home after home the, these fridges packed with these magnets, and quite often they'll be very low on the refrigerator doors. And I then asked the, the mother typically, you know, how come it's there? And she will then explain for me, well, the tradition is that I will start placing it first, and then my husband will place it, and then the kids will place it around, and they'll have this circle creating a, and a spiral effect around these magnets on the entire refrigerator door. And as we started to explore that, and there's a long story coming into play here, but as we explored it, we learned that this actually was a replacement of entertainment for kids, because there's not a lot of stuff they could do in Siberia, but to play with these Fritz uh, Fritz magnets. Now, having that in mind, Pausing for a second, we went to Saudi Arabia for another project where we had to build the largest mall in the world. And I realized there that the refrigerator refrigerator magnets were actually higher on the fridge, which indicated that, in fact, that need for kids to be entertained was not nearly as strong. Which, by the way, also was the reason why we invented this toy company in Russia, because we could see the need was there based on that little subconscious clue. But all of that basically led on to our reinvention of Lowe's, a supermarket chain here in the United States, where we could see again, once again, the fridge magnets where it's present, but in a completely different format once again. And that time, it was present in a way where it's almost a replacement of the local community. We could see in the way they were stacked, the way they were displayed, that the community is dying in the United States. Um, think about it we think we're incredibly social, but yes, we're social in a cloud. When did you last talk to your neighbors? When did you last see the kids playing on the streets? Uh, We really are really isolated right now. And the counterbalance we could see in the way we're decorating the homes. And out of that, we actually were extracting a conclusion, which were, why don't we create a supermarket chain, which is somewhat infusing community back into the local neighborhood. And that then led to, to Lowe's and Lowe's food and the reinvention of that, which really in many ways today is a community area inside the store where you have people singing and dancing and, and, and meeting up with the chefs and local farmers. And, and it's one of the fastest growing supermarket chains here in the U.S. And it's all back to a Fritz magnet as crazy as it sounds. And that deep inside we basically learned three years prior in Siberia.
0: Well, but both of these examples, what's interesting is, is you know, everybody is talking about big data and this capturing of data, but in 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 your book and in these examples, this is really the human observation of small data, right? Not the analytics and the intelligence that machine learning or AI or any of those things can do. And so, how do what do you think the combination is between all these investments on the technology side of data? and the human observation side of small data like you are, how do those two things come together?
1: Well, I first of all think that we have a ton of data, but really no information today. And I think we are blinded by too much of of that data. Uh, And and by blinded, I say that you and I have an intuition and typically an intuition in my mind is defined as an accumulation of experiences and insight you gain through many years. And then maybe you can't articulate why you feel a certain way, but you have a feeling of this is the right path. But the more we exposed for data, the more insecure We become, and I'm sure you tried it. You had a feeling of this would be the right answer. Someone else tells you something else, or some data tells you something opposite. You change your mind, and it shows on later you're wrong. Um, And this is where we have a problem right now because data should not be necessarily killing our intuition. Small data, quite often, actually is a way to extract an instinct uh, into a mindset and into a strategy. What I believe that artificial intelligence and and, and other type of of data insights can give us is a fine tuning of things. It is where you optimize things, but you do need to have a hypothesis first. And hypotheses typically come from the base understanding of human beings. Why do we behave in a certain way? What drives us? What is our insecurities? What is our outer balances? Once you understand the core, and by the way, this is pretty consistent across almost every nation in the world we're not that different around the world we've learned from this study once we have based that thing once we understand what human beings are driving by or driven by then we can add the other data set on top of it fine-tune it and most importantly uh, verify if this is correct or not because then we know what we're looking for rather than just looking for everything and everyone right
0: well so as somebody who may be responsible for strategy on the marketing or sales or customer experience side there with all this overwhelming amount of data number one which we both agree on right two you have to have the hypothesis and so you know coming up with the hypothesis would probably be next and then after that would have to be looking through or, or running some kind of scenario planning or something like that out of the data to come up with a first set of conclusions, if you yeah. will, that you then might go test in this human small data way. Is that yeah. fair? That,
1: that, is, that is fair. But do you know what the problem is? The problem is today that uh, very few people actually take the time off to go to phase two, i.e. to develop a hypothesis based on deep consumer insight. Why? Because we're so incredibly busy. We stuck behind our digital screen and we believe we can run the consumer through a remote control and called uh, data called reports but very few cmos or people working in the marketing and communication industry today actually takes time out and move in with consumers to spend time with them and, and, i think
0: that's crazy i would sorry to interrupt like i just yeah. think that's crazy I, I find it fascinating that so many executives um don't spend time with customers and and i don't mean at customer advisory boards or at big events no. where you're honoring them i mean with customers, right? Exactly. So CMOs going on sales calls, or 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 listening in on customer service calls, or vice versa, whatever the case might be. And I and I know that there's been all kinds of studies, you know, where some uh, some companies have said, you know, look, we we want to go and see how people use our detergent and how they store it, and they realize that it leaked, and they put the caps on it. And I mean, you know, it's sort of those basic things where products are developed in a lab. And then they don't watch customers use them or yeah. they watch a user group use them, which is also not real world. Yeah. Uh, and so yeah. you miss the subtleties. So why do you think it is that they don't go out besides the office stuff? They just don't have time because I think you can make time. But beyond <laughs> that, what do you think they're afraid of in, in going out and spending time with customers?
1: Well... It, it comes down to a much deeper uh, reasoning why and, and it's something I thought a lot about and um, I do think it comes back to the media and it sounds very terrible what I'm saying right now but, but here's the reason why we are so overwhelmed with information every day and whenever I ask big audiences when I'm doing my speeches about how many feels overwhelmed with data every day or information basically everyone raises their hand so what happens is the space we once had either when we're transitioning from work to private, or when we had a lunch break, or when we're just thinking and reflecting about things, it gone. Because there's so much stuff coming in media, whether that's emails, or text messages, or chat messages, or whatever it may be, is streaming in an endless stream into our phones or into our devices. So that downtime downtown we should have to reflect and things and ponder around things is disappearing. Now, two things are happening as a consequence of that. The first thing that's happening is that as we are not exposed for that time of thinking time, reflection time, we never really put things into perspective. We are more reactive than proactive. And that means we never really have time to develop big strategies or even mentally believe we have time to spend time in a consumer home. The second thing that's happened, which is even worse, is in fact that politics is happening. And politics happens because we never really have time to sit down in a room and truly reflect on things. We're just running from meeting to meeting. When politics happens, we are more in the situation of creating even more convoluted situations around a consumer insight and we're trying to create more complex setup of everything. But the reality is we're not solving the real problem which is to get closer to uh, to the consumer. So I do actually think this is the escalating effect we've seen, and I think this is continuing more and more because we have less and less time for ourselves.
0: Well, I think that this is, you know, this kind of age, we live in this time where it's just always on twenty four seven, and very few people are going to do what you're going to do, Martin, and sort of put your phone away January 1st, (laughs) right? And I mean, it takes takes a lot. Uh, And so what things would you recommend to people listening to this podcast uh, on things they can do sort of Monday morning, right, to lean into making more time uh, especially those that are responsible on the strategy side, could be designing products yeah. or customer experience or sales or marketing. And, and they feel like I, I'm just running so fast, I don't even know what the hypothesis could be. Hmm. I know everyone's saying things are changing. I know I have all this access to data. I don't even have an opportunity to look at it unless it's in a perfect dashboard, which seems like I'm yeah. always having to fix, right? Yeah. Uh, so what, what would you give as a piece of advice um, for them to start down this journey, if you will, of reflection and coming up with these hypothesis and being willing to look at the small data as well as this big data.
1: Well, let me give you three different pieces of advice. And they're not easy, but, but give it a go anyway. First of all, I was sitting in a bar the other day in New York City, and um, I asked the bartender how much he talks to, uh, to the people sitting in the bar. There's six people sitting there, all of them on the phone. He said, I never speak to people anymore. I spoke to people in the past, but I don't do that anymore. The issue is we're never present. And there's three consequences out of that. First, we don't meet people anymore two, which is even worse, we don't see or observe things anymore. And I'm sure you've tried it. You're sitting at a bar. You're waiting for someone. The person is late. What's the first thing you do? You grab your phone. You do something with it, anything with it, so you don't look like a complete loser. Right? So that's the second thing. The third thing is even worse. We never get bored anymore. Boredom is the space for pausing, reflection, and reflection is the space for creativity. That means creativity is dying. And in the end of the day, we need to reinvigorate that dimension in our brains. Because if we don't do that, we become robots. We try to act on behalf of a robot, but actually we're not adding a lot of value. So this is the first thing I'll do. The first thing I'll do is to stop that addiction of bringing up my phone whenever I feel there's a pause in society or I'm somehow trying to hide behind a screen to look busy. Instead, look down, look up, and then start to observe people. The second piece of advice would be that you need to go through transition zones in your lives. When you wake up in the morning, we grab our phone, then we are on our phone in the bathroom, then we have phone doing work uh, when you're doing breakfast. When we going to work, we're doing uh, work on our phone. And at work, we do private stuff. There's really no transition zones. This, the bed is designed for two purposes. It's not designed to be on the phone. And what I'm saying here is that transition zones allows us to reboot our brain. Uh, I'm sure you tried it yourself that we don't reboot our compu- computers anymore, or at least less and less. What happens? Well, the computer gets slower. Why don't we reboot it? Because we don't reboot our brains. That's the reason why we get more tired right now. It's the reason why we can't get those clear, crisp ideas with one's head. So the second thing is to create transition zones where you really allow your brain to shift between different environments. And the third thing for me is to move in with consumers. And that's the hardest one. And for me to be very pragmatic, you don't need to do that every week. But do me a favor. Do it one or two days a year where you literally take two days off, you move in with consumers, or at least you spend one or two hours in four or five consumer homes a day, or customer homes, or wherever audience you are appealing to, just to listen, observe, and learn from their lives. Once you do that, what happens is that you jump out of your chicken case, so to speak. And just to establish this metaphor, it's very simple. There was an experiment done six years ago where chickens were put into cages. And after half a year, they're let free. And guess what happened? They jumped straight back to the chicken cage once they entered, uh, or once they left the, the chicken cage. And in many ways, we are all stuck in that chicken cage. We see the world from one point of view. But if we jump into the world of other people, into other chicken cages, we will start to see the world from another point of view. And that develops another instinct because it's those different angles which give a perspective in people's and ourselves and our own lives. So I would move into consumers, spend time with them, and then use that as a guiding light for how I slowly can change my point of view from a very chicken cage inside out point of view to an outside in point of view
0: yeah and it's it's you know i am a huge fan of outside in i'm a, I'm a huge fan i think that decisions get made processes get built uh, products get developed sales processes get created uh you know marketing content gets generated all from the inside out yeah. and very few do it from the outside in and i think part of the issue uh, is the fact that there's sort of one Steve Jobs, right? And everybody says, you know, not everyone can go out and anticipate what a market will need. Correct. I I, I, I agree with that statement. But I also agree with you in the sense that, but there's a lot of small data out there that could be giving us small adjustments, small yeah. little pivots, right, over time versus these big, massive transformations. Yeah. And if it just pivots you a little bit, you know, if you work for a a B two B company, and you know you sell tires. And, you know, go watch how they get, you know, installed on cars. Do they have everything they need? Are they boxed correctly? Are they, you know, it's almost like undercover boss, right? Yeah, <laughs> like yeah, it just is. get out there and uh, and go and and go and look. And so, I I just love to to end this all up and wrap it up with you know you spend so much time. You know, you also are on the show uh, on the Today Show with Main Street Makeover. Uh, many small businesses are overwhelmed by all the things they could be doing. And, uh, you know, there could be one thing as it relates to this. So the go out one or two days, I think, is fantastic advice. Is there something else you could say around the investments they're making technically and how important that is when it comes to this marrying of the human visual data you collect and then the data that, you know, your work will generate for you?
1: Well, absolutely. I think that the most important thing you could do if you are a small business is, first of all, to understand that your strength as a small business is, in fact, that you have access to small data to a degree which no corporation have. You basically can just team up with your customers very quickly and look at the world from their point of view. And once you do that, you can immediately adjust your retail setup or whatever store, whatever business you're running, because you are, you're very nimble. So the first thing I always would do is to say, let me take a look at this from a customer point of view. And and if I should give you an example, I was um, some years ago asked by uh, the Ferrari company, which is the one producing Kinder Surprise and Chocolate eggs and and all the good stuff. The owner of the company was later on passed away and I was spending time in Southern Italy. It's an Italian brand uh, and he's an Italian owner. Um, And we went to his little store, one of the thousands of stores they own across the world and and where they're selling these chocolate pieces to to kids. And as we're standing there, uh, he asked me, what's your view about this place? And I said, let's, let's take a look at this from a different point of view. So I went down on all knees and started to crawl on the floor in the store. And, and of course, the owner, you know, the richest man literally in Italy at that stage, and all his bodyguards uh, you know, were di- asked to go down on all four knees and crawl behind me. And he had this very ironic scene of us you know, crawling through the store. And I said to him halfway through the store, and of course, everyone was completely surprised here. I said to him, try to reach up and see what you can get hold of. And he couldn't get hold of anything. I said, that's the issue. If you're six years old, and you literally cannot see your products. And actually the entire business portfolio is targeting that audience. And this is the first starting point, that is to see it from a kid's point of view. Now, once you understand it from the customer's point of view, then you can start to adapt technology. Then you can say, how can I enhance things, seeing it through the lens of technology? How can I amplify messages or whatever? But don't start from a technology point of view and then go human. Start human and then say how technology can amplify or improve the situation rather than that becomes the end goal.
0: That's a fantastic piece of advice and and one that I think anybody listening to this podcast can live by, that when you make decisions through your customers' eyes, it may slightly shift the decisions you would have made otherwise. And that's what matters. uh, The more your customers believe that you have their... Uh, interests in mind and that they're not another number that, that you're empathetic and you're you know, able to tell the right story and then match that story with the way in you, that your company delivers an experience, I think magical things can happen.
1: Absolutely. I agree with you. And and I think as, as long as we for, don't forget the fact that there's a reason why we're human beings, there's a reason why we're irrational, and, and let's use it to our benefit, rather than suppressing those dimensions, which makes life so wonderful. I think a little bit right now, we are more dictated by technology than actually leading the technology. And I think it's time for us to put a line in the sand and define where does it add value and where does it not, and not blur those two lines.
0: Absolutely. Well, Martin, this time has flown by and I so appreciate all your fantastic insights. And I hope everybody uh, enjoyed all the small little nuggets of data that Martin shared on on this very quick What's Next podcast. But I'm going to let you end it with one more thing. What do you think is next for small data?
1: I think what's next for small, at least for me and small data, is that we are going to be able to correlate the data in an extreme way. And, and, And we're doing that already now where... Instead of me, for example, asking you what your self-confidence level is, which is really a difficult question to ask in interviews or when you observe people, we are now starting to look at what are the signals you're leaving behind yourself in the home, the way you decorate your home, the way you stack your fridge. And we're basically trying to figure out what our correlations are. So if a certain set of signals are placed in a certain way, in fact, that can give you an indication of what your mindset is all about.
0: Well, great. Well, thank you so much, Martin, for joining the What's Next podcast. I so appreciate you and all your insights. And thank you all for listening to the podcast. And I hope to see you again soon. Thank you very much. You're welcome. Thank you for tuning in to the What's Next podcast. Appreciate your support. Please make sure you subscribe, share with your friends and leave a review. Head on over to tiffanybova.com backslash next for show notes and additional insights from me. And I'll see you on the next show. Thanks again.